Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. The impeachment process officially beginning at least the trial phase in the U.S. Senate. We'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. We have our regular assortment. Uh, no, we don't actually. We have good, good and crazy martinis today. And uh, Jim, let's start with uh, the good one, which is a takeoff of yesterday's bad. Yesterday's bad was the media treatment of the demonstrators in Richmond on Monday for Lobby Day. Gun rights supporters coming out. They usually do on Lobby Day, but just in far bigger numbers this year because of the gun control agenda of the Virginia Democrats. We don't know exactly how many people were there. The mainstream media said it was about 15,000. I heard one spokesperson from the Virginia Citizens Defense League today saying it was between 50 and 100,000. So whatever it was, it's probably somewhere in the middle. We have one arrest, and that was for wearing a mask. And uh, some folks actually looked at the uh, social media sites of the person arrested, and it seems dubious that this person was really uh, a defender of the Second Amendment. So, uh, Jim, you've got Ralph Northam now uh, saying, the governor, of course, we're thankful that today passed without incident. The team successfully de-escalated what could have been a volatile situation. I will continue to listen to the voices of Virginians and do everything in my power to keep our commonwealth safe. There was nothing to de-escalate. Nobody caused any problems. The people were there uh, protesting peacefully. I know a lot of SJWs got the vapors because people brought their weapons who uh, stood outside the, uh, the Capitol grounds there. But in the end, this was a beautiful display of people taking their voice to their legislators. The legislators probably aren't going to listen. But they even picked up all the trash. I mean, this is how conservative demonstrators act. And the media seems shocked and even possibly disappointed that there wasn't more chaos. Yeah, a lot to unpack here, Greg. First of all, this is pretty much a role model of how protest in the United States is supposed to work. Uh, They were undoubtedly passionate. They were very clear in what they thought. I would note, I believe the number I saw from Richmond police was 22,000 which is quite a bit. If I were running a a march and and people asked me how many people were there and, you know, the number was in the neighborhood of 22,000, I would not put 100,000 as a, uh, (laughs) as the high end there. Again, 22,000 people in the, you know, on a Monday morning, bitter cold. Um, The crowd certainly looked huge from, from all the pictures that were taken and drone footage and all that kind of stuff. Look, that was, that's a very impressive crowd. Clearly this is a response to the, uh, uh, the gun bills that are being introduced in this uh, cycle of the legislature, no reports of violence, uh, no reports of threats or intimidation. It sounds like nobody, you know, react. Alex Jones didn't even create any trouble, which is a, you know, uh, a, a small miracle. Um, now, I'll be honest, Greg, I, when I first saw those videos of some guys in full camo fatigues and some of them were wearing ski masks and they got the long guns, I wasn't thrilled. Um, I think that... Uh, if you're the whole point of your rally is to say to the state, to say to lawmakers, to say to hey, the entire country watching, we are not threatening. We are not a menace to our communities. We are not uh, a danger to anybody else. I myself would leave the Hezbollah cosplay at home. Um, that's not uh, that's not the way I would do it. But I would note that none of those guys who came there dressed like that caused any trouble. Uh, in fact, you saw probably saw footage and reports of them picking up their trash when they were done. So even though I didn't necessarily, you know, think their attire was the most persuasive choice they could have made, they were all, you know, law-abiding citizens who did what they were supposed to do. So kudos to them. 
Uh, on the one arrest for a mask, um, people might be saying, oh, how can you arrest somebody for wearing a mask? Uh, well, first of all, this goes back to the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and that's why Virginia has that law on the books. Uh, apparently, according to the Richmond Times Dispatch, the protester who was uh, done this, who, by the way, I don't, they didn't say they were uh, affiliated with Antifa, but it basically looked like it was a strong possibility this person was on the other side of the gun rights movement, shall we say. Um, the police officer had warned the person twice. This person was wearing a bandana that was covering their face. It was not a ski mask of people were necessarily wearing for heat because uh, there were a lot of people who were wearing those because, you know, it was really, really for stunk and cold that day. Um, obviously, the cops did not believe that many of those people who are wearing ski masks were necessarily wearing, to, wearing it to do so for any type of uh, sinister or nefarious purposes. The woman in question was warned by the police twice, and the third time she didn't do it, they, they arrested her. For those saying, oh, my goodness, well, look, you know, chance she was released on her own recognizance. She'll be facing a charge, and my, my guess, this is going to be you pay a fine, everybody moves on with their lives, you know, minimal harm, minimal foul. Um, so there, there, there's, you know, now that's the good news. There is a da- bad news that the uh, Democratic leaders in the state legislature said, well, we're glad nothing happened, but this hasn't changed our minds one iota. I would tell these people, like, you don't get 22,000 people out on a Monday morning when it's freezing unless people really care about this. And maybe though all those 22,000 people only come from districts that have Republican lawmakers. Maybe those 22,000 people, uh, I'm sure some of them were from out of, the, out of state. I don't think enormous numbers of them were. Maybe Democrats have nothing to fear in the next state legislative elections if they pass these bills. But I don't know if I'd want to bet on that. And let's point out that those Democratic majorities in the state legislature are not big. <laughs> you know, so if there's any wavering Democratic state lawmaker, seeing 22 people thousand come to town and, and, you know, so adamantly insist that they're opposed to this probably ought to be ought to make them think twice. I don't know if they will. And finally, cur- turning on to our uh, exceptionally wise and always honest <laughs> governor. It is worth noting that the FBI said that there was credible information of some sort of potential violence at this. He, you know, Northam didn't make this up out of whole cloth. I'll give him that kind of credit. But that having been said, it certainly was convenient for him, for him to say that these folks coming to town were a bunch of dangerous extremists with ties to white nationalists and, and all of that kind of stuff. Did it re- warrant some sort of police response and, and police protection and preparations? Sure. Uh, clearly the, the police in Richmond did what they were supposed to do. It sounds like things went really well. It sounds like there really wasn't even any, you know, Grievances, you know, no, no, the protesters, I didn't see too many of them complaining about the police or, or anything like that. Um, so the, on the one hand, okay, good job, Richmond police. Clearly, you know what you were doing when the Charlottesville police did not. Um, but the other thing you kind of left wondering there is, on a scale of one to ten, was this a three or four level threat of somebody coming and trying to create some sort of violent trouble? Or was this a nine or a ten? And this question of did... You know, was the evidence there for a, a, a four or a five? And Northam chose to treat it like it was a nine or a 10. Um, we're never going to know. I don't think you could say this was made up out of whole cloth. But again, very politically convenient for Ralph Northam. And we'd also kind of point out that this is why you don't do stuff like the blatant lying about the blackface. Because this is a circumstance where the governor needs the people of the state to trust him. And he's already broken that trust, particularly on matters relating to race. So, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, look, we can all be happy with it, but a lot of people who attended that rally, who saw no indications of violence, who saw no indications of trouble was brewing, 
Um, I'm seeing some people saying, you know, during the tense protest, and people saying, no, it wasn't tense. It was almost festive. This was this, you know, everybody there was, you know, adamant about their beliefs and passionate, but everybody kind of felt invigorated. Nobody felt like they were like, we're going to, you know, let's, 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 uh, let's mess some stuff up. You know, people are going to ask themselves, did the governor try to paint these groups as, as, you know, a, a dangerous mob of criminals when in fact there wasn't any evidence of that? My guess is that, you know, they did arrest those guys, those two, you know, that got Canadian guy. There was some evidence pointing to the risk of trouble, but uh, it certainly was in Northam's interest to hype this. And you're going to be all left wondering, did he overhype this for sheer political advantage? All right, let's move on to our second good martini now. And uh, Jim, Hillary Clinton is once again uh, wading into the politics of 2020. She's not running. And uh, based on these comments, it's pretty clear she has no intention of getting in now because she just uh, made mortal enemies of every Bernie Sanders supporter out there. Not that they loved her to begin with following 2016. But uh, Hillary Clinton is the subject of a new documentary where, among other things, she uh, gives her unvarnished take on Bernie Sanders. And she verified that she still believes everything she said in that documentary to The Hollywood Reporter. Willie Geist on Morning Joe, MSNBC, uh, giving us the tale of the tape here on what Hillary really thinks of Bernie. Hillary Clinton has some fiery words for her former 2016 Democratic opponent, Bernie Sanders, saying, quote, nobody likes him. Clinton sat down with The Hollywood Reporter to talk about her new Hulu documentary series entitled Hillary, set to premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. The Hollywood Reporter noted that in the documentary, Clinton says that Sanders, quote, was in Congress for years. He had one senator support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney, she said, and I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. The Hollywood Reporter asked if that assessment still holds, to which Secretary Clinton replied, yes, it does. When asked whether she would endorse Bernie Sanders if he becomes a Democratic nominee, she replied, I'm not going to go there yet. We're still in a very vigorous primary season. I will say, however, that it's not only him, it's the culture around him. It's his leadership team. It's his prominent supporters. It's his online Bernie bros and their relentless attacks on lots of his competitors, particularly the women. And I really hope people are paying attention to that because it should be worrisome that he has permitted this culture, not only permitted, he seems to really be very much supporting it. All right, Jim. So uh, I- I'm already popping the popcorn for this. Uh, we know that Hillary's attacks on Tulsi Gabbard only meant good things for Tulsi Gabbard. I'm not sure what the impact will be here. What do you think? So you and I are currently taping a podcast, which is an auditory medium. If we were discussing this on Twitter, I would respond to you in GIF form, which is a visual <laughs> medium. My GIF would be a finger pointing to a lie detector machine and declaring, no lies detected. <laughs> Now, look, you know, listeners know we're not really big fans of Hillary Clinton. Uh, yesterday, I wrote a point saying that, you know, you could hate Bernie Sanders. You can think he's terrible. You, think he's worst, you know, and still look at the way the Democratic National Committee operated in 2016, quite literally as a financial subsidiary of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Hillary Clinton campaign was paying off DNC debts and then putting the DNC on an allowance of what it could do during primary. You know, if that, if that doesn't emit an odor... <laughs> You don't look at that and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't be a financial subsidiary of one of the candidates and still be considered an objective or a, a person administering the, the primary. You know, you can look at that and say, wow, they really screwed over Bernie Sanders in 2016 in an unfair way. Flipping it to the other side, he was in Congress for years. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like 1990, right? He had one senator support him. Correct. And that was Patrick Leahy, right? And, you know, I don't know whether you'd say Patrick Leahy genuinely loves him and thinks he's the best guy who could have been president or whether it's like, look, he's my home state senator. You know, he's <laughs> we work together on a lot of legislation. If I don't back him, he's going to be a pain about this for the rest of our time in Congress together. So you know, it could be that one. I don't know. I'm hoping you can. I'm hoping he at least asked Batman what he should do on that one. <laughs> um, you know, uh, nobody likes him. Eh, nobody wants to work with him. Eh, he got nothing done. We've pointed out that you know very little of what of legislation Bernie Sanders ever uh, introduced ever got a, became law. And by the way, that's very you know a lot of lawmakers don't have a lot of their bills not become law. Right, the ones that do are usually let's rename the local post office over this beloved former you know local figure. Or something. But that having been said, correct. He he has not been an influential guy on Capitol Hill. But you know who, who everybody's asking. Well, what does Bernie think? Uh, the whole nobody likes him thing. One of the things I observed earlier this week, because I saw the headline, you know, former Vermont governor trashes Sanders. And I was like, ah, Howard Dean's at it again. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't Howard Dean. By the way, it's really kind of fascinating. Howard Dean and Bernie Sanders did not get along really that much at all. I mean, they're both Democrats. They worked together a little bit here and there. But, you know, it did not take long to get much sense. But either either one of these guys uh, likes the other, respects the other. Remember, Bernie Sanders was not a registered Democrat for almost the, you know, up until right before the 2016 election. Um, he was a socialist independent and he would work with the Democrats if he felt like it. And he would criticize the Democrats if he felt like it. And I guess Howard Dean, that just struck him as being, you know, uh, generally a pain in the neck and and not really useful to what he wanted to get done. Well, it wasn't Howard Dean in this story. It was Peter Shumlin, the following Democratic governor, who, oh, by the way, tried to enact single payer in the state of Vermont and it didn't work. Shumlin is, you know, he's, he's not a conservative Democrat. He's, you know, he's, a, he, he's not a, a, a centrist. He's a Vermont progressive. And he can't stand Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so there's an interesting question. Why do all these people who on paper should at the very least be on good terms with Bernie Sanders, why does he generate this fairly open hostility? And the Bernie bros would say, ah, you know, it's because he's real, because he's pure, it's because he's uncompromising. And those guys are all cushy Washington insiders or I guess Burlington insiders, <laughs> Montpelier. Montpelier is the capital. I just don't buy this idea that it's only because they, they find him such a threatening, you know, principled figure. I think Bernie Sanders just rubs some people the wrong way. And, I, you know, for all of his ideas that he wants to enact all these sweeping pieces of legislation, all that stuff. Um, I'm very fond of this comparison, so I'm going to make it again. Bernie Sanders wants to do what Lyndon Johnson did, but Lyndon Johnson spent like a good chunk of his life, like a quarter century, building up his relationships with other senators in the Senate. And that was how he got all that stuff passed for the Great Society. And, you know, it's one of those things where everybody wants the result, but nobody wants to put in the work. And it's just kind of Bernie Sanders just says, oh, I'm going to get elected and, you know, there'll be a, a, a revolution and we'll, you know, no. <laughs> Democrats who didn't like you now aren't going to like you that much more when you're president, particularly if they have to take a tough vote. So, you know, no lies detected. I think, you know, some people are saying, ah, this is going to rebound to Sanders' benefit. Everybody hates Hillary these days, including the Democrats, all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, maybe it will, but I just kind of think that uh, there's still some bad blood there. I think the complaint about the Bernie bros really does, it's going to resonate with a bunch of Democrats. I really think they are. I don't think Bernie Sanders is necessarily a, a horrible human being. I think he actually is. There's kind of this, you know, amiable curmudgeonness to him. But a lot of his supporters are raging words that I really shouldn't use on this uh, podcast, Greg. I don't know if you've run across them. 
I've Every seen, once in a while, I get retweeted to them, and it's like a swarm of bees with the most disingenuous uh, arguments and and snide tone and just general um, blistering contempt for anyone who's not just like them. Uh, and you know, this stuff can eventually you know start to influence the way people see a candidate like Sanders. Well, they're going to love this podcast then, so we should make sure that yeah, they yeah, hear that. Don't pass this on <laughs> to your favorite Bernie bro friends. <laughs> And Project Veritas has another field organizer talking about the virtues of gulag. So uh, anyway. At some point, does it stop being coincidental that all the gulag fans end up volunteering for the Bernie Sanders campaign? (laughs) Total, total coincidence. So, yeah, it doesn't get the New York Times. Uh, Probably the thing that damages Bernie the most is the impeachment schedule. Nancy Pelosi's little delay here probably hurt him more than uh, the New York Times or Hillary Clinton or anything else here. The fact that he's now having to cancel rallies and probably will for the next couple of weeks leading up to the caucuses will damage him more than anything else. And Biden's already got a pretty healthy lead, it looks like, in the last couple of polls there. Yeah, I mean, there's one other thing I want to throw out here in the idea of how this could how Hillary's reemergence, if she chooses to become kind of this de facto, I mean, she could advocate for Biden, she could advocate for anybody but Bernie, you know, look, there's still some bad blood from 2016. And I don't think you can say, oh, Bernie cost Hillary Clinton the election. That having been said, a decent number of Bernie Sanders supporters ended up either voting for Trump, voting for Jill Stein, or staying home. And probably in sufficient numbers in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin to think, oh, maybe this could have turned out a little bit differently. If we end, and I have a corner post that's kind of in this vein, look, Biden's looking pretty good right now. If it turns into another long, hard slog between Biden and Sanders going all the way to the convention, I think a certain number of Democrats are going to start having flashbacks and saying, well, wait a second, you know, here we are again. He's not a team player. He's never willing to put it aside. He ends, he drains the resources of, of the person who's going to be the nominee. He only kind of gives this half-hearted endorsement, you know, there's a bunch of people who are already kind of, you know, the stage is set for them to really not like Bernie Sanders. I think he's got to tread kind of carefully as he heads out from here. Hillary with the bad blood, Bernie probably with some bad blood back, especially given what happened in, in 2016. And so uh, a lot of different takes on this, including us. And you'll also find some good takes on uh, political interactions like this and uh, how political correctness uh, factors into it on uh, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense cast, the new podcast from Radio America. Two ladies, Mock and Daisy, also known as Chicks on the Right. They talk about the issues that matter to you. They talk about everything from parenting to the dangers of social media, uh, political correctness, the importance of marriage and family values in this crazy world. Uh, They're smart. They're funny. They're conservative. uh, Everything's got kind of a tinge of politics, but uh, a lot of uh, pop culture and other uh, common sense tangents that they'll go on as well. They believe if you want to make America great again, you got to start in your own home. So to find out more about the Mock and Daisy Common Sense cast, go to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. All right, Jim, I teased it at the beginning. I know everyone has just been waiting with bated breath. Impeachment talk. That's our uh, bad slash crazy today. Mitch McConnell uh, out with his proposed rules package last night, and you'll be shocked shocked to know that the Democrats don't like it. You know, it was just not that long ago, it seems like, where the Democrats didn't care what the Republican minority in the House thought of their process. And now the Democrats are just weeping over the unfairness of the process in the Senate. Here's Chuck Schumer. The Republican leader will offer an organizing resolution that outlines his plan for the rules of the trial, which was only released last night. Amazingly, waited till the very end, and now we see why. 
It is completely partisan. It was kept secret until the eve of the trial. And now that it's finally been made public, it's obvious to see why Leader McConnell was keeping it so close to his vest. Because the McConnell rules seem to be designed by President Trump for President Trump. Jim, uh, I only have to imagine that a public that's uh, meh on impeachment overall has got to be absolutely transfixed on the rules fight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, this entire process, Democrats have kind of operated as if they've got some sort of circumstance where where either Mitch McConnell or Republican senators at a whole, as a whole are, are scared and desperate and, and they feel like they're holding nitroglycerin and they're afraid it's going to blow, blow up in their faces. And, you know, uh, and, you know, as we saw that three week delay and, and now through this, they, they really don't. I, mean, I, I can summarize the Mitch McConnell rules plan in about five words, five words. I'm, I'm lapsing into McConnell a little early. <laughs> Let's get this over with. Um, <laughs> oh, that's it, it is you know, the, the absolute fastest way it could, do, it could do is you could have a vote on whether to remove by the end of January. And everybody might be thinking, oh, my goodness, that's that's practically 10 days. Are you kidding me? That's that fast. And that would be significantly faster than the vote that was for Bill Clinton's impeachment. Um, And by the way, I think you could make the argument that neither Bill Clinton's impeachment or in this impeachment, are there really that many material disputes of fact? It's not like they were saying, oh, Trump didn't make the phone call. There might be a little questioning with the words and is that transcript 100% accurate, but it's not like there's, you know, everybody pretty much agrees what Trump did. The question is, uh, do you consider it to be an abuse of power? And do you consider an abuse of power significant enough to remove the president for the first time in American history? Uh, some people are going to say yes. Some people are going to say no. Unsurprisingly, it might come entirely down to party lines. I think everybody knows what they thought about this. I think they decided what they thought about this really after the first couple of uh, uh, you know news stories kind of laid out what had happened in the interactions with Ukraine. By and large, I think people decide you know what you think of whether Trump should be impeached in 99.9% of cases lines up with what do you think of Trump as president to begin with. So the idea that this is going to suddenly say, oh, wait a second, they're not having witnesses. This is a travesty. That Bud Light commercial, it's a travesty. It's a sham. It's a mockery. It's a travesty mockery. I just don't think it's going to happen. You look at these polling numbers and they by and large have been a steady line. There's been maybe like a one or 2% uptake since the House impeached Trump. Okay, good for you guys. You know, by and you know, I don't think you know that's not a significant number. There aren't that many uh, Senate Republicans who are going to feel pressure on this. But if you do decide to go with witnesses, and it does become something akin to what the Clinton one was, that's going to run six weeks, which means you'll miss the Iowa caucuses and you'll miss the New Hampshire primaries, and conceivably it could even go past. Uh, actually, you, you'd go past uh, Nevada. You'd go past South Carolina. This could conceivably go to Super Tuesday if everybody really gets into it. All right, we want to call all the witnesses we can, you know, we can think of that would be relevant to this. I don't think Bernie Sanders wants that. I don't think Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren wants that. I don't think Amy Klobuchar wants that. This idea of let's do this fast and get this done by the end of January, I think there are a couple of Democrats who might not mind that. Um, You know, we'll we'll see how it shakes out. But I have this, this sneaking suspicion that there are some Democrats who wouldn't mind getting this done. Because in the end, this probably isn't going to be the thing that uh, uh, decides the 2020 presidential election. And the 2020 presidential election is the only way that Donald Trump stops being president. Jim, it's fascinating to watch. You see CNN with Chris Saliza and some of these other places 
with the key senators to watch, none of which add up to 67. But there's like a half a dozen that they think could uh, call for witnesses. They have Romney and Collins and Murkowski and and Cory Gardner and other people who have tough Senate races. And now McConnell brings out the rules package and you have Mitt Romney saying, yeah, looks good to me. And uh, there's no obvious signs from any of the others that they're going to buck what Mitch McConnell wants to do. And it's gone from, oh, these people need to do this for political survival to how could they be derelict in their jobs? And it's just the whining never stops. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, folks who may see, you know, yesterday, in Monday's jolt, uh, I described a conversation I had with a Republican senator uh, on Friday the week before. It, this, this Republican senator is pretty darn pro-Trump, pro-Trump. The entire conversation was off the record, so I can't say who it was or any specific quotes or anything like that. But I can give you my sense of what Republican senators are thinking based upon this conversation. And for what it's worth, pro-Trump Republican senators don't think they're losing anybody. They don't think Romney flips and supports impeachment. They don't think Murkowski flips and supports impeachment. None of the other names are getting tossed around. They don't think it happens. Now, maybe they're being too confident or something. Um, And also, by the way, they think they get they think that this Republican senator seems to genuinely think that Manchin, Doug Jones and Kirsten Sinema could all vote against the uh, against removal. I'm not quite so confident of that. Beyond that, so basically, 47, let's say they keep all the 47 Democrats and they get three Republicans to say, yes, yes, I totally, you know, I totally buy into this. You're left with a situation where that would hit 50. That'd be the same number of people who voted for the most, uh, the, the, the impeachment article against Clinton uh, back in 1990, 1999, is, I guess, when they had the vote. That's their win. That, that is, that's the best case scenario for them. They get 50 votes and they can say, ha, see, in a Senate where we had the minority, we got 50 votes. Take that, Mr. President. And obviously, I don't think Trump will be chastened at all. I, you know, it's a symbolic victory, I suppose. If it's party line, they get 47. And if they lose one or two or maybe even three, maybe they, get, maybe they don't even get the lowest they can get is like 44. So all of this drama is about a very small range of possibilities and none of which end the Trump presidency. So... There are days, Greg, where I'm sitting here and asking, not I don't mean you personally, but like, why are we talking about this? <laughs> Helping to put it in perspective for the, all the hyperventilators out there. So, uh, Jim, enjoy the rules fight today. I'm sure that'll be riveting. And uh, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a great review. We always love to see those. And please join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.